1: Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello,
2: welcome to another episode of History Hack. It is me, Alina, and I'm flying solo today. I have with me today Susan Stewart, who is a historian who specializes in the culture history and impact of cosmetics throughout history. Her first book was Painted Faces, A Colourful History of Cosmetics, and she's here today to talk to us about her new book, Common and Uncommon Sense, A Social History of Perfume. Welcome, Susan.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: I'm really excited. We were just talking now that uh, your book actually was delayed because of Covid.
1: Yes, it was. It uh, it kind of hit the publishers at the wrong wrong moment when uh, when things were were quite difficult. So it has been somewhat delayed. I rushed to finish it, but and then COVID hit, and uh, inevitably, uh, the publishers had quite a backlog to to um, catch up with. When that it's out now. It's, well, it's, well, it's out. It's it's out on the 6th, 15th of November. So we have not
2: long for this book to come out no. for everybody to grab themselves a copy and read it. I hope so. It's got a fantastic front cover. So I hope that will appeal. I've got to say, I am a massive, huge fan of perfume. And every time I walk through uh, the, uh, what you call it, in the airport, so duty free, that's the word I was looking for. Every time I walk through duty free, I, I have to buy myself a new perfume. So my collection is just growing and
1: growing and growing endlessly. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm not sure how much I actually personally use it. I I do use it, but uh, the book is really about how people used it in the past, obviously, and the, the variety of ways in which they used it, which was extensive.
2: Well, let's talk about that, because you mention in your book that the first use of scent can be found all the way back, all the way back to the Neolithic period, ancient Mesopotamia and Crete. So what sort of things were they used for and what were
1: they using for scents well, the Neolithic period, obviously, evidence is fairly scanty. We've got no writing, and the materials that were being used were organic and therefore decayed. So we're really sort of shooting in the dark a wee bit with with that. Uh, but there seems to be a possibility, archaeologists think, that maybe um, incense, because that's one of the earliest uses of perfume, was, was burning, burning scent, so possibly for... Um, purification purposes, maybe even birth practices. They have found something which looks like a mattress in South Africa, which was stuffed with aromatic herbs and grasses, which may or may not have been a defence against fleas, because again, perfume, as we associate it with, you know, body perfume, with adornment, with looking, um, smelling pleasant, or even uh, um, smelling... uh, well, certainly smelling pleasant anyway. There were so many other uses in the past that uh, things were used for. So it's quite quite possible that, you know, a, a mattress like that, the, the, the content of it was, in fact, to def- defend against um, insects and bugs and things. There's also some pots from Syria which have been found to contain cedarwood, juniper, pine resin, for example. Uh, we can work that out now using techniques that we have uh, for that do not damage the vessel, but we can we can scoop out what, what's inside or take a residue from the inside using something I think it's called gas spectro- spectrometry. Um so that has been analysed. Mes uh, Mesopotamian and um, Minoan civilization, that's much um, there's much more evidence because obviously we've got writing. Uh, perfumes crop up all over the place, particularly on these uh, accounts on the cuneiform tablets, because they're buying in lots of uh, scent materials to make perfumes. They're found uh, evidence for their use is found in um, sort of funerary settings where the incense, the perfume is burnt as an incense, and in domestic settings as well, we see incense burners shown on uh, wall paintings, depicted on wall paintings. Uh, The idea was that this smoke was a means of communicating with the gods. So it was a sort of two-way street. The people communicated with their gods through this smoke most of it would have been gum resins or wood bark, so things like cedar wood or frankincense or myrrh. They would also have maybe used rose, roses, um, and some flower uh, scents as well, and possibly even imported things like cinnamon because although things things often came from far away and people didn't really know where they came from, but people like the Phoenicians were were uh, um, ardent traders, so they would be bringing stuff into, maybe not on a regular basis, but they would be bringing stuff into uh, into the Mediterranean. They also perfumed their wine. Um, and one thing that the Minoans were, we know they were particularly keen on was saffron and there are lots of illustrations in the uh, palaces of people gathering saffron saffron doesn't really smell very much but when it's crushed it does oh really yeah i it's... would never
2: have thought that because you know people cook with saffron
1: yes i never thought that you would actually crush it and burn it yeah it's it doesn't smell like it i don't think it's got a particularly strong smell uh, unlike some of the other things that they would have been using, but they seem to have harvested that the the Minoans anyway, to quite a great extent. Um, they would have perfumed their wine maybe with rose water. Um, the perfumes were a symbol of power as well. A lot of the production of perfumes in the Minoan civilization anyway, happened inside the royal palaces. Uh, some of it might have been Sent out to for finishing to villages in the local area, but a lot of it was centered around the king' Perfume equal power. It was it's almost like a sort of a bit like uh, associating nice smells with gods, so important people, wealth. These were expensive ingredients as well, um, so there was a great deal of value in 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 scent, in owning scent, and having containers with scent in them. So yeah, that's, uh, there's lots of evidence at various of the palaces, Palace of Nestor in the Greek Pel- Peloponnese and various other ones where there are vats and other perfume-making equipment. Does that answer your question?
2: <laughs> no, it, it does. I mean, I was thinking when you said incense, for example, myrrh, the first thing that came to mind for me at, at biblical times Because we all Mm -hmm. know the story of when Jesus was born and three kings came and they bought gold, myrrh, and I forgot what the other thing is now. My mind's gone completely blank. That was it. So, and that's all the thing that goes through our mind is at the biblical times, they're bringing something expensive Mm -hmm. to baby Jesus.
1: Yes. But all, these things are also supposed to prefigure his death and all sorts of other things as well. The, the myrrh, I think, because it was, uh, apparently, I'm not that well up on the sort of biblical illusion, but, uh, uh, yes, they were. They, these things have been identified as prefiguring parts of his life as well. Um, but, yeah, they were they were valued, and they're still expensive today. Um, saffron's expensive if you're going to cook with it, and... Uh, because uh, you only get a tiny little drop. Uh, frankincense and myrrh are both uh, fairly um, costly if you're going to buy it in terms of buying a, a, an essential oil or, or whatever. So, uh, yeah, these things were of great value then. Um, and I suppose the other reason they were of value is, which I probably haven't mentioned, it should have mentioned, is that they could be applied as a medicine. So, and they didn't have much else. So, you know, hence the value as well.
2: That's very interesting because talking about medicines kind of in a way you link medicine with religion, especially in, in ancient cultures. So can you tell us how scents and perfumes were f- f- featured in religion? of ancient civilizations and how's it depicted how did it impact their cultures but before before i actually finish this question i just want to add something because if i'm not mistaken the ancient egyptians also used scents to cover the body am i right in that
1: yes i mean in earliest times they would still have used it as a as a as a body perfume but part of that would have been to present themselves as being healthy to smell nice um and as a means of cleaning themselves and smelling clean and the only sorry just to interrupt is because this was used as a religious purpose really
2: at the end of the day of of mummifying a body and then kind of i guess cleansing it is through
1: sense. Preserving it as well, yeah, and the mummification process does involve a lot of um, a scent and stuffing the body with various parts of the body with different sorts of um, perfume. This was about preserving the body and preparing it for an afterlife where that body would be part of that afterlife. Uh, so, yeah, it was... A long and time-consuming process, which uh, obviously rich people, the the pharaohs, etc., um, all went through. So yeah, they uh, and it was it was also very much part linked with the religion. I mean, the the, the ancient Egyptians have got perfume recipes, had perfumes recipes, a uh, a uh, written on the walls of some of their temples, on the innermost bits of the temples, where the, where that that uh, information was important to the the priests who who um, ran the temple but wasn't on public view, perhaps, to the the wider uh, population. But they would have been very familiar with the, the smells surrounding the temple, but they wouldn't necessarily have known how they were put together. And there are lots of different recipes, for instance, for the perfume kiffy, which is um, in some... Uh, uh, descriptions has about sixteen ingredients, and another recipes he has about fifty. So these were complex, complex recipes, uh, known only to those who needed to know them.
2: I've got to say, wow, that's that's just incredible. Do you know if anybody's ever recreated the recipes?
1: Uh, there's been a few attempts. Yes, successful. Um. um there's been one or two exhibitions I think in Greece and Athens there was one where they tried to um, recreate some of the some of the saints it's difficult to even if we recreate the scent, we can't really get to how the people of the time would have reacted to the scent, or how it mixed with the other smells that were round about in the world that they lived in
2: that's really that's really interesting. I find that that you know we can still try at least try and recreate yeah. it but we can't recreate
1: the conditions but we can recreate the product if that makes sense. Yeah yeah uh-huh but the the, the thought behind it is or the, the the feelings about it that particularly I suppose is important when you come to sort of city living where you've got you know um, food being sold you've got an incense being burnt you've got animals you've got all sorts of things which is mixed together so yeah their idea of what smelt bad or smelt good varies a bit from what we might think I mean some of these some of these scents that they're using things like cedar wood etc we would we, you know, we would we would probably still use. I'm not sure how much we would fa- fancy pine re- resin, rather other than as a cough a cough treatment, or you know, we wouldn't see it as a something to wear as a um, to go out for an evening, for instance. Oh, I don't know. I'm one of these
2: people that actually burns pine resin in their home. Oh well, right. <laughs> <laughs> that,
1: you know, that, that would be okay, but to put it on yourself, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, everybody's, and that's the other thing It's it's very subjective. You know, everybody's mm. idea of what smells nice and what um, what they like and what they don't like varies. So it's another factor to throw in the mix.
2: Could you smell like a, a freshly car, made car, you know, one of those um, those car air fresheners? That's the word I was looking for. Just mm. around smelling like a car air freshener because that's, that's a pine smell
1: yeah <laughs> yeah i believe you can get some very posh cars that actually have a range of smells and you press the button and you can you can uh you can choose one oh, wow so i need I a believe. car like that uh, <laughs> so i believe i'm not quite sure on that one but it's one of these developments of technology which happens um by the time we get to the twentieth 20- 21st century as opposed to being in the elastic times oh wow i mean we're talking about a time period I'd love to
2: talk about ancient civilization especially for the next 25 minutes but we've got a long time period to head through so let's kick off and move to the early middle ages because early middle ages you get the church and you would think that uh, it would be a period of stagnation for the use of perfumes because of the strict nature of the church but it's not quite true is it?
1: No it's a Initially, there was some uh, dislike of um, perfumes as far as uh, the church was concerned. I mean, you've got the ascetics and people who sort of rebelled against anything that was uh, um, might be associated with something pleasant or cleanliness or whatever, but these people were possibly in the minority. Uh, the church very quickly adopted perfume because it became very much part of sense um, of part of their their worship so uh, they were burning incense again
0: in uh, a in a sudden flash it all comes clear it's a eureka moment an epiphany hi i'm marcus smith host of the constant wonder podcast the world offers marvel meaning and mystery around every single corner in nature art science culture history we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids experience the thrill of transformative encounter we'll bring more wonder to your day listen to constant
1: wonder wherever you get your podcasts honor of the of the god of their of their of the god okay the herbs and flowers still remained had a medicinal value so they couldn't sort of chuck them out altogether they were they still had a a, a very important function out with the church to uh to fulfil so and the saints themselves they were believed to smell good and fragrance was an indication of their presence so what's called the odour of sanctity so bottles of perfumed water were 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 sold to pilgrims as a as healing a, products which they claimed where a you know it, it was the saint exuded by the saint and then of course you've got the thurible, which um this the swaying censer, which the church still a uh, uses and if you were a pilgrim traveling a long distance to a one of the, the sites of uh, pilgrimage, then this censer, um, and you can imagine, you know, all these sort of sweaty pilgrims turning up. You know, the the smell of the censer would have sort of and um, sort of counteracted that a bit, and also, the, the, it's very calming and soothing, the the motion and, and the smell of the frankincense etc. So, uh, yeah, they 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 quickly adopted. Uh, saint as something that was part of their their worship. So
2: moving on from the Middle Ages, we're moving on to the... further on from the Middle Ages time period. <laughs> you, you open up, for example, trade routes. You've got India, you've got Portugal, you've got the Americas. That must have had a huge effect on the European sense scene.
1: No. Well, uh, I'm not sure that it did, really. The... the, the Trade routes had always been there. They could be fairly unreliable in the ancient world. It was, you know, a hit or a miss whether you got what uh, um, you you would have liked to have got, and the, the, the inc- there was an inconsistency in the in the supply, if you like. But uh, the t- there was a lot of materials coming from places from very far away into Europe, without the people living in europe in the ancient world really knowing where these things had come from which added to the mystique so you were, were actually caravans from arabia there was um material from china even coming into a uh, europe and of course that boosted the price because they, all sorts of uh, Ideas grew up about where they, um, these materials had come from, and you know some fantastic ideas about the phoenix nest or wherever you know that they that they were somehow magical that they turned up. So in the Americas, yes, the um, was the discovery of tobacco, of course, which doesn't seem like a particularly exciting perfume ingredient, but it, it was and uh, very popular at the beginning of the twentieth century.
0: Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So, yeah, and then there was the
1: the, um, discovery of, well, various discoveries by Christopher Columbus and Vasco da Gama and people like that, uh, who... Did open up the trade routes certainly. Uh, Spain was still very much to the centre, and so was uh, Venice as a as a as a, um, a trading city. And there was a lot of cashy that um, a, in the sense of Italian. Stuff coming from Italy, perfumes coming from Italy, and also from Spain. Scented gloves given to Elizabeth the First, that sort of thing. Did uh, you say
2: scented gloves given to Elizabeth the First?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, scented gloves were very much the in thing because hands were often the the first point of contact with. Uh, you're betrothed, if you like, perhaps you would never, you know, it's not exactly a sort of arranged marriage, I suppose. So hands were really important as a first point of contact. So it was important to keep them a uh, white and uh, clean and soft. So gloves smeared on the inside with, uh, with scent um, and with a sort of scented oil where the thing to do some people even slept with them with them on to keep their their um hands and a uh, uh, looking good so yeah um scented gloves were any any lady of standing would have worn gloves i like that idea i think we should bring
2: that back scented gloves <laughs> because you've got the, the mass unwashed on public transport, that might make a bit of a difference.
1: Well, uh, yes, well, that's true. That is, I suppose, true. But, uh, um, yeah, uh, yeah scented gloves were definitely, and, and uh, coming from places like Spain or um, a Portugal, these were much valued.
2: So, perfumes and scents, they played quite an important role because you've mentioned this very briefly at the beginning of our chat that they uh, played an important role in medicine. Yes. And, for example, fighting the plague, didn't they?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Fighting the plague, well, basically, they didn't have much else, really. But uh, uh, things like um, rue or rosemary or cloves, cinnamon and various other aromatics were considered to be effective against the plague. Of course nothing much really was but um there's the plague doctor the the image of the plague doctor with his a uh, beaked nose which people hopefully have maybe seen with his hat and his long cloak completely covered the nose would have been stuffed with aromatic plants to try and protect him from catching the plague a uh, if um, he was obviously going to be in contact with there trying to treat it. It must have been quite a frightening experience to see him really approaching with his hooked nose and his um, long cloak. They were supposed to... They, 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 they believed that bad smells in the air, miasma, uh, spread germs. So to put pleasant smells into the air Thought to counteract the plague, so women might walk around with a nosegay and hold that close to their nose to try and prevent um, succumbing to the to the plague. Uh, and one of the first perfumes called Queen of Hungary water, which um, is the first perfume really similar to what we would buy nowadays, in that, that it's a liquid alcohol um, based liquid. In the past, um, perfumes could be solid, semi-solid, or liquid, but they were quite likely, they were not alcohol-based, they were oil-based, olive oil or um, whatever. So the Queen of Hungary's water was alcohol-based and its main purpose originally was as a plague water, not necessarily as we would associate wearing perfume to as a a matter of adornment.
2: So I'm interested because I'm, I'm hopefully that uh, scents do become more readily available. But is this possible by the 18th century?
1: Uh, yes. What well, buying scents? Buying it already manufactured. Yeah,
2: merchants were starting to bring them over more.
1: Yeah, they, um, there were a lot of different outlets, a lot of different places you could buy perfume. So, you've got everything from peddlers selling perfumes at doors to, to the beginnings of the perfume houses, um, and you could even buy them in places we might not think of, like hat shops or libraries. Uh, so there was libraries. A bad- Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, there was a vast range of them. Um, but homemade was still practiced because some of the large country houses were, um, which had large gardens. We had the supplies and the servants with the skill to do, to produce some perfume. Obviously, uh, the the sort of uh, standard of it or the strength of it varied from house to house. The incentive to make your own was still there because of the cost. Quite often of scent of something that had had a cachet that some wealthy lady or wealthy gentleman might want to put on their handkerchief or on themselves or on wherever. Uh, but, yeah, they, they, they were still pricey. So And also there was lots of books out there to explain how to make perfume. So uh, they, well, there was no shortage of recipes available, sometimes in cookery books at the back of cookery books, um, or in medical uh, manuals because they were obviously still being used to say uh, you know to, for everything to from um, gynaecological problems or to get rid of spots or um, hair loss or any anything really that um, you would find these ingredients or maybe sort of like a herbal bath or uh, for rheumatism things like that. Slowly and surely you come to the Victorian age and fashion must have changed this? Um, perfumes became a bit more gender based because in the past they had been, you know, pretty much men and women, and anything went for either men or women. And of course, the, the purposes of perfume, like um, a, the medicine side of things and, and all that, didn't discriminate between men and women. The Victorians didn't discriminate to any great degree, but it was sort of thought that maybe florals for women like roses and violets and lavender, whereas more aromatic things like cedar wood were more suited for men. There was a class distinction as well because you could buy lavender from a, a street corner seller, but then if you had any money, you would be wanting to go to one of the great perfume houses. Uh, there was also novelties as well, like squirting finger rings and and sort of... as fountains and shops perfume fountains and ladies would dip their handkerchiefs in the fountains that was in the sort of early the very early department store kind of idea that's very that's crazy i mean
2: not that it's crazy i don't mean crazy in that sort of sense but you would have a perfume fountain and ladies would just come and dip their hand i just find that just unimaginable (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, I mean, the ancient Romans had perfume fountains as well, but so it's a lot of these things are not necessary. They have some basis in the past, if you like. A yeah, the, the shopping, the idea of shopping Victorian times as well was a there was a sort of luxury end shopping of which perfume was part of the the perfume houses. Um, which began to be set up in, in France and uh, also some in America and some in Britain. You just mentioned it, that, perfume houses. Let's stick with this. Let's delve a
2: little bit more deeper into this because they exist today, obviously. Yeah.
1: Did, did, I mean, did this affect the perfume culture? Well, it was became, it, there was an element of perfume culture that became very exclusive. So you've got Guerlain, Creed, Creed, and Lubin, Rimmel, to name but a few of the Perfume houses, and these were frequented by the rich and famous, and who lent their um, cashier their their name to the often to the brand. Sometimes these perfume companies made uh, scents that were a, tailored to, to specifically to one individual. Um, the countes of Europe they they sort of gave their backing to these places and were well known customers. And the fact that it's a sort of early advertising, if you like, so they uh, these um, companies did well on the back of some of their clientele, if you like. So anybody with money would want to um, uh, favor one of these perfume houses. Queen Victoria, uh, Napoleon the Third, and some of the Russian royals favored Guerlain, for instance. Um, and the house, the house of Guerlain, made signature sense for them. These are symbols of wealth and status. So, uh, but this at the same time, um, it sort of other outlets uh, appeared. So, there were cheaper outlets like perfume bazaars and the department stores, which brought this new way of shopping in. Uh, I suppose you could try and not buy if you could dip your handkerchief in the in the fountain. You know, um, no doubt you would have to be. Turn up looking as if you had some money in order to get through the door, but uh, yeah, uh, it, it was um, yeah, it was a very uh, the, the the salons, the Gurlain salon or uh, Creed's salon was very exotic, very beautifully decorated with one nice furniture, lots of plants. It was somewhere that was very exclusive to to visit um so yeah that's they, they were quite a number of these places and some of them are still going today by the way i'm on the go website right now trying to have a look if
2: they have the scent that you just mentioned the personal scent for queen victoria i mean do you i can't seem to find it but do you think they actually replicated this for mainstream use in the
1: modern times i don't think so i think a um one of the russian nobles had a um a scent that I can't remember if it was Gurleen or not that he went to, but he, it, uh, it was specially commissioned for him and it was sold only to him until his death. I think they then produced a sort of version of it after that. But yeah, these things would not have been sort of distributed to anybody else.
2: I mean, that's a shame. I think right now that would make such a great market for this historical perfume, and people probably—I would go crazy. I would buy Queen Victoria's perfume just to have <laughs> it on my shelf. Not, I mean, I don't. I might not like it. You never know. As you said, you know, we're, we're all, uh, partial to our own sense, but I would have it as a novelty.
1: Yeah, I mean, the bottles themselves is, were were are co- certainly collectible. Uh, and certainly were very expensive. The con- you know it was important way back in the ancient world to produce a a, a vessel which a, expressed the value of the content inside. So the bottles that were being produced by these people were being produced or made by um, well, but when you get to the um, Beginning of the 20th century, you're, they're being made by Bakara and uh, Lalik and people who are making glass vessels um, uh, for a tableware and all sorts of other things. But these are these are uh, antique value in their own right.
2: Which kind of brings us nicely into the 20th century, because we've seen a massive purification of sense into everyday lives. We just had that conversation, literally. That you know, I, yeah. to, I use perfume all the time. But how has this been achieved over the last hundred
1: years? Well, advertising, of course, is became a huge thing, uh, and a celebrity advertising, or um, maybe you know, by the sort of sixties, you're getting sort of uh, people from the film industry, et etc. Advertising. Saint. but earlier on it's the society ladies um, magazines as well women's magazines there's a proliferation of women's magazines uh, so it's gone from you know quite small time advertising to quite major uh, um, opportunities to to promote your your are a uh, cheaper production and technology as well. I said one thing I don't think we mentioned that. from the 19th century onwards, you're getting synthetics uh, being used, so that they replicate the smell of the of the natural product, but are an awful lot cheaper to and quicker to work with than the um, the plant material because the plant material you often needed a vast amount of the raw product to produce the perfume. So the technology developed to um, produce these um, synthetics was a whole lot cheaper and quicker. We've still got the, we've gone back to the past as well, though, in the 20th century, because people are very keen on the idea of aromatherapy. So we're going right back to the idea of the health benefits of, the rose oil or whatever so yeah i mean we, we haven't lost that idea we've and we haven't lost the religion idea either because it's still there within the catholic church anyway i so some of these ideas have proved to be they've either stood the test of time or they've proved that there is actually some some merit in it. I'm not suggesting you shouldn't go to your doctor if you've got some sort of ailment and just sort of splash on the rose oil. But at the same time, um, they, they, they are not without some merit. So there is that. The changing role of women as well um, had an impact the, to some extent. the But the giving of gifts or um, perfume gifts and, and big sets uh, with different um, you know a perfume, a powder, everything matching in the 60s, etc was a popular gift for men to give to women. and women had been given perfume by men way back in Roman times. Uh, so it's you know that still keeps going. The more department stores, uh, Selfridge's opened its perfume department in 1910, I think. and uh, it was a lavish, a lavish affair. There are early photographs of that. Pyramid selling as well, that was getting to more people. So you've got Avon um, selling their perfume. Uh, now considered a lot of it very vintage looking, but um, uh, popular and a younger market as well they were aiming at, sort of young teenage girls uh, with pretty peach and things like that. So, yeah, uh, men main. Well, that's coming back in in the twenty first century. I think more men uh, wanting um, perfume and cosmetic products, and then you've got the technology of, you know, it's the the car, um, scenting your car or your um, clothing, sports clothing. They're able to impreg- impregnate um, trainers and and sports socks and things like that with with um, scent to counteract sweat, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So. Yeah, I mean we've we've moved away from some of the things, but we've also incorporated other uh, aspects of the use of perfume that have been around since Neolithic times, or at least since the ancient world when we know for sure when we've got the writing and we've got an idea of what's um, a greater idea of what's what was available.
2: So before we finish, just out of curiosity, what is your favourite perfume? <laughs>
1: well. Um I've got one or two. I like Rose by Paul Smith, which isn't particularly expensive, but uh and I have to confess that I I really like a perfume, a vintage perfume called Sweet Honesty by Avon, which is really not available anymore.
2: <laughs> See, that's the worst thing. They make a beautiful perfume and then they just take it out of production.
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, true love by Elizabeth Arden. I like that one as well. But uh, yeah, Uh, what's
2: yours? (laughs) Mine, actually. I don't. Many people don't know this company. It's quite an expensive company. A friend once bought me perfume because I, long story cut short, I used to work in the centre of uh, London, and I used one of the clients was Lalabo. And I would go into that perfume shop all the time. And I just fell in absolute love with at least, it's at least 41. It's like a, a floral jasmine mm. with lilies. Oh, it's just so beautiful. And my friend one day went in there secretly and bought me a bottle. Mm. And I wear it sparingly because it's so expensive. But it is definitely one of my favorites. And everybody will always compliment me when I'm wearing it.
1: Oh, that's nice. No, that's that's that is a, a thing about the only thing about using it sparingly is if it goes off or something awful like that. I mean, throughout history, they've struggled to try and keep pre- preserve perfume in the ancient world. Again, it was it was um, uh, dense vessels made of alabaster, etc., that tried to to try and keep in the smell, and uh, vessels with tight fitting lids, etc. Uh, we're better at that now of course, um, and I think probably the um, the synthetics and, and such like help that, not the organic materials that go off um, so quickly although a lot of the smaller perfume companies uh, still, they want to market something a bit more natural, so this you one's know, not with- so natural. <laughs> Thank God. Thank God, because
2: I think it's so expect. I just, I can't I can't, yeah. I can't afford this bottle of perfume so often, but uh, it is, it's very, I love jasmine and I love floral smells. So it's definitely yeah. my favourite. Yeah, yeah. But Susan, listen, remind our listeners
1: the name of your book. It's called Common and Uncommon Sense, A Social History of Perfume. And it's out on the 15th of November, I think. Thank
2: you so much for joining us. I love this. It is something that we don't do very often. You know, we usually delve into something military. But the history of perfume and scents has been so interesting and so fascinating that I, I loved. This, this past hour has been fantastic. So thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
2: Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash History Hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to
0: upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing.